if I didn't have the experience, then I wouldn't have been able to put this together and this creative thinking on entrepreneurship and artistry and not artistry. It, like to me, it's like, I see that everything is a different piece of the same puzzle. That is how I see things and how I approach my clients, my practice, my writing. And, you know, that's kind of it. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey there, welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Maria Brito. Maria Brito is an award-winning New York-based contemporary art advisor, entrepreneur, author, and curator. Brito was selected by Complex Magazine as one of the 20 power players in the art world, and Art News says she is one of the visionaries shaping that world. A Harvard graduate, originally from Venezuela, her first monograph, Out There, published by Pointed Leaf Press in 2013, was the recipient of the USA Best Book Awards in both the art and design categories. And the reason she's here today is because we're going to talk about how creativity rules the world. It was published by HarperCollins Leadership and has won the Axiom Book Award and the International Book Award in the Business and Entrepreneurship category, as well as being chosen by Next Big Idea Club as one of the best business and creativity books of the year. Maria, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. I love to hear the accolades. <laughs> it's always nice to hear how good you are, right? Oh, gee, I mean, I, I hope not to disappoint people after all that. You know, I know, I know. It's always a risk. So right? where do you call home and where are you connecting from today? So I have been in New York City for 23 years. And I'm originally from Venezuela, which is sad, but home is New York. And I'm in Manhattan. No other place in the world to be. <laughs> so why, why is it sad that you're originally from Venezuela? Well, no, I mean, like I have been here longer, so yeah. I feel myself very American. Yeah. And, you know, Venezuela is a country that unfortunately fell into both social and economic disgraces and is quite shameful. But that's for another day because yeah. I don't think that our listeners want to know, like, yeah. know about money and creativity today. So let's do fun things. And <laughs> well, thank you for having me and thank you for listening. Oh, you, you bet, you bet. So I am curious, though, growing up in Venezuela, what were the kinds of lessons you learned about money or entrepreneurship as a kid? Well, listen, not as many, right? Because the financial literacy for kids like me who were middle class was almost non-existent, right? I mean, it's almost like clear that the country wasn't necessarily having this culture of let's teach children or look at entrepreneurs and how they do things. It was a very traditional environment where people needed to like go to a classic school and end up in a university following the path of being a doctor, an engineer or whatever. I mean, owning companies was nothing that I ever wanted to do or think that I would do, right? I mean, when, when I was little, that was not my dream. I wanted to be a rock star. And that's just seriously, that's what I wanted to do. And 
I love this question because nobody has ever asked that mm. question. And I think that it's important for people to know that the way that I teach my children money or the way that they see it, being both of them born and raised in New York is a very different story from how I grew up. And the motivations they have and the things that they see are encouraging and different. And that's not how I grew up. I was hmm. given a credit card when I was 18 or 17, I think. And with like, you know, a very little limit, my grandparents had like given me some sort of savings account when I was very young. But because, of course, the currency devaluated every day. I mean, it was like it didn't really matter. Right. It was like a cent, you know. So that type of thing. It's Americans sometimes don't know how lucky right they are, or we all are in a way that there is compound interest that you can work in many different ways with your money, that you have access to markets, that you have, you know, 401ks or that you have IRA accounts. All those things do not exist in, unfortunately, the third world. And it's one of the reasons why. Also, there are so many inequalities because if you have to constantly be hedging yourself against the currency exchange and inflation and hyperinflation and things like that, you can never fully grasp the value of money, you know? Right. Yeah. So I want to jump into it. So how does a Harvard-trained corporate lawyer become an arts consultant? <laughs> so when I left Venezuela, that was my path out, which was great. And... My parents, obviously, as I said, were concerned about what the future would be. And they had no other kind of training in their heads that the way to do good things for oneself was to go to law school or to go to medical school and things like that. And so I thought that was kind of my insurance policy because I personally didn't want to be in Venezuela. And it was already, that was, as I'm telling you, so many years ago in the late 90s, but it was already turning into a communist, socialist, whatever it is. And I wasn't happy there in the sense that, yes, I was well-adjusted young person who had friends and go to parties and things like that, but I just didn't see myself long-term thriving and being independent because the system wasn't made for that. Right. So as I told you, I wanted to be a rock star. So then my parents said, no, I couldn't, right? So then I had like my option B was to be an attorney. And so- <laughs> That's kind of a so letdown, I'm, isn't it? <laughs> I'm a very radical person. So it was a very radical thing because I was like, you know, I don't, they are not going to let me go to art school either because it's already like they would think that was not going to be the insurance policy. So while they didn't have this kind of like, let's learn about money, let's, they just didn't have that type of chip in their heads. They did have this idea that you have to provide for yourself at some point. You have to take care of a family at some point. You have to be independent. And the only way for you to do that is to have a, this very serious dependable career. So that was a serious dependable career that I chose and I mean, like there wasn't anything better than Harvard Law School, honestly, for a girl from Venezuela. And those were very magical years for me. And I wholeheartedly thought that I was going to be an attorney because, first of all, it's very different 
to be in a class talking about policy and constitutional law and whatever than being in a law firm with stupid documents until three in the morning, right? It's a very different thing. So I wholeheartedly believe that. And second, once you sort of get into the New York state of mind of like, making money and you know everybody here really works very hard or used to but let's say they still do and that you get into this kind of like i can pay my rent in a nice one bedroom apartment in a very nice neighborhood and i can go out and i can go to restaurants and i can buy little things of art for me so you get into all that because you know, law firms own you and because they own you, they pay you very well, then it takes time to sort of like unwind that programming or that type of, you know, lifestyle, if you will. And for the longest time, I had to figure out what to do with my life because I, I think it was you know, probably five or six years in. And I was like, this is horrible. I just can't do this. And, you know, I was like, literally put all my options out there. What can I do? Can I, should I go back to school? If it's like, no, I'm not going to spend 50,000 bucks getting a master's. Or something. It's crazy, right? I mean, because that's the cost of education here, right? Or whatever it was. I don't know, 25, 30, I don't know. And, you know, should I try to work in a company doing something else? Well, maybe, perhaps, but then, you know, what really am I going to do in a company if I'm going to have to end up in the same type of, besides I was doing work with banks and that was, you know, you get very pigeonholed once you've done something for a long time. So I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to go and work for doing what at Morgan Stanley or whatever. There, there was nothing really that I could figure out that worked for me. And since I had been buying art for me and little, you know, increments and I had gotten married and then my husband and I like, you know, we're buying things and, you know, that was a world that I profoundly loved and intrigued me because it was also all this thing of money. At that time, it was very mysterious. Now it's sort of very open, but at the time it was very secluded and very hermetic. So you didn't really know who owned what happened. So I bought this book that was written by an economist. It's about all the things that happen in the art world behind the scenes, like the guarantees that happen at auction houses, the big art collectors, all this sort of money machinery behind it. And I understood it really well because I was a corporate attorney. So it's not that I was like, oh, you know, what's this? And at the same time, I had been advising informally some friends about what art to buy because they came to my house always say, I love your art. I love your taste. You have such a good taste. Why don't you do something with that or work in fashion? You know, things like that. So I consider all these options and... At some point, I was like, you know, I'm in a dead end, basically, because I have worked many years of my life. At that time, I think it was eight. And I was pregnant with my first child. And I was just, you know, between the heart and the rock place of not knowing what to do, really. And I said, you know what, I'm going to open my own business because people who do what I now do at that time, that I saw them, I was like, those people are not smarter than I am. That was like my my motivation was like, I'm better. I'm really much better than them. And I love art and I love people. 
and I'm going to make this work out because there's no plan B. If it doesn't work out, I, I don't know what am I going to do, you know? So, I mean, I, the thing that's striking to me, I mean, you did have the advantage of an excellent education. You are a very <laughs> smart person, but, you know, growing up with like no exposure to the capitalist system, no real exposure to, you know, small business starts, you know, and then going to a corporate gig, like, isn't that a huge leap? I mean, just for, for listeners, it's like anyone really can start a business. Like you really can start a business and it really is something that can go well, it can go poorly. But so how did you make the leap and how was it in the beginning? I think that the, you know, the leap was, as I'm telling you, it was just like by elimination. It, nothing would work for me Got at it. that time. And I went and I, like I told you, oh my God, should I go back to school? No, I'm not spending that kind of money. Yep. And actually I even went to an info session and I was there and I looked around and I was like, I could fucking do this class. You know, like I could be the teacher. You know what I mean? I was like, no. <laughs> how do you end up, so go from there, how do you end up working with P. Diddy, Gwyneth Paltrow? Like, how does that happen? Because I think that's like. Well, I think that, you know. I don't know. No one knows. No, that's impressive. I, I believe in God, but just say whatever you want. I believe that you get the confirmation when you are in the right path. And I think part of it is beginner's luck, honestly. And honestly, it's because I didn't create no preconceptions. I had no issues whatsoever doing crazy things. So meaning, or things that right now I wouldn't really even do, to be honest. Like oh, I would go and shake hands with like the top collectors and there was a time of like, it was hard to find photos of these people because there was no Instagram. The information was very buried. We're talking about 14 years ago, right? So I had no fear to go and talk to those people. I had no fear in showing up to these openings and talking to the owner. And like, meanwhile, there were people looking at me with horror because like, why is she talking to the owner of this gallery? Doesn't she know he's like an ogre or like he, you know? So I think that kind of like bravado that I had because of like starting something new and not having any sort of background picture running the kind of narrative was very helpful to me. And because of that, my elevator pitch, my introduction to people was not only very honest and authentic, but it was very, very enthusiastic. So people really responded to that. And the both introduction to Gwyneth was through, and this is very interesting too, because people feel that I was connected. You know how it is, right? Like everybody's like, oh my God, she has an upper hand. She's connected. She's white. She's this, none of that shit. I met someone who knew Gwyneth in New York City after I had left my corporate job by literally going to some event. And when I, that person heard what I did and my take on contemporary art and living with art and being passionate about it and collecting and whatnot, she's like, you need to meet Gwyneth. She loves very strong people like you. She loves to, and at that time, yes, Gwyneth was already very famous, but the thing that Gwyneth had turned her attention to was Goop. So at that time, it was a newsletter that she sent on Thursdays from her kitchen in London. 
And it wasn't a multi-million dollar company like it is right now. So she wanted both to support new people to launch them because she always had this sort of like insider information of cool things. And she also wanted content. So I actually went crazy and I like literally prepare all this packaging and thing for after I met her. I told my friend, would you please give me Gwyneth's address? I'm not going to stalk her. I'm going to send her something. Mm. So I sent her a package and I sent her all the articles that I had written, which is like that I didn't have anything as capital to show her that I was worth, you know, being there. It's like everything connected. Someone from a women's organization had asked me to contribute an article for Forbes.com. So I had written an article for Forbes.com about collecting art and it was very basic. So I printed some nothing of my company. I had nothing. And I asked a friend who had a company that sell photography to give me a photo for free on a frame. And I sent that to her with a bow and nothing happened for three months. And then three months later, she called me. She's like, thank you. I got the package. I got the article. I haven't been in New York in three months. I want to do something with you for Goop. So that's how I started working with her. And with Puff Daddy, it was very interesting because it was a similar story. We had a common friend. And this is the thing. Again, it's not that I was connected or not connected or that my parents or that I'm this or that. It's that you end up meeting people when you are running on the streets of New York going for, I would literally go to every open. I don't do that anymore. Like every opening, I was there. I was there, I was there, I was there, I was there. And then I forged this relationship with a woman whose husband is in the music industry on the back of things in the music industry. And I love her. She's wonderful. And, you know, like she kept looking at me on Facebook and Twitter because that's what it existed. And she kept in touch. And, you know, I mean, that was a time where you could really keep in touch with people, honestly. Like, and I'm so overwhelmed, I can't keep in touch with anybody. But like, I kept in touch with her. And then one day she's like, look, I have someone to introduce to you. And I was like, who? Oh my God, you know, it's like he's known my husband forever and like they've worked together and like, da, 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 and it's Puff Daddy. And I was like, oh, great. You know, I had been a lawyer for so long and, you know, it's like, yes, but it's not that I run on the streets, like pulling my ears out. Like I was like, yeah, amazing. But I wasn't like the fangirl, you know, I was like, okay, great. When it happens, then after that, I really was shocked, but it was that, but I didn't have like this sort of like pressure on anything mm. to happen, right? I was like, look, I just want to prove that I am very good at choosing art, that I'm very good because I'm on top of my game, that I can give a lot of value, that this is a service business. Yeah. Ultimately, there is a transaction of a good, of an asset. And so the truth to like all of this is that I had passion, I had a hustle, I had an, an intuition for things, all the type of things that it doesn't matter if you go to the best MBA in the world or if you go to Harvard Law, it just, they don't teach you that shit there, right. you know, right. like you have to make that happen. And it's a very good question. What you said, I wasn't ex in like the capitalist. Yeah. I mean, up until the time I left Venezuela, there was sort of like a system of capitalism. Remember, that was an oil yep. economy for a long yep. time. Yep. But it was nothing compared to the United States. I mean, and like people who would own businesses 
I mean, you either had them like people who had like the conglomerates or then it was the guy who owned the bakery. You know what I mean? It wasn't like you could never find a woman like me. Right. Right. That wasn't very like it just wasn't, you know, that wasn't the thing. There's sort of two things that pop out of this whole, the arc for me. One is you have to be willing to be lucky. Like you have to put in the effort. You got to put in the time. You got to put in. And then you get lucky. That's just kind of. And the challenge is it's luck. You can't create it. It just happens. You have to kind of wait for it and keep powering through. And the second thing is, and I love you said this earlier. I don't remember the quote exactly, but it's success comes from stumbling from failure to failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Like you said, you're very enthusiastic all the time. So that's a huge part of it. Yeah. And that people can read that for miles. Right. right. You can't learn it. You just got to keep doing it. You got to keep going, going, going. At what point does arts consulting, which seems kind of institutional, turn into creativity consulting, which seems very individual? Like, how do you make that transition? Well, I haven't transitioned from art consulting because I still do that, right? Okay. And that's the thing. I'm, a, I'm like, I do so many things that people don't know what I do, but People do. So, yeah. And that's like a very interesting legacy from this kind of pigeonholing thing that we talked about. Like you do one thing and then that's the thing, which I was like, if I already was in the world of doing one thing, I'm going to come out big time and I'm going to do a lot of different things. And that was always part of having sort of like a very multi-angular brand for myself, right? Like, you know, I worked, I did product collaborations with artists. I did a design around art with certain clients. I wrote books and I did all this consulting and creative thinking and creativity that I still do. But the main, the backbone of everything is really the advisory business because it's a business that is extremely active it's big and it really by volume of the transactions and the clients that I have been able to help throughout all these years is a very important part of my business, the most important part of my business. But when I realized the vast amount of experience and information that I had gathered throughout the, I guess, so the whole thing started in the year that I was celebrating the 10th year anniversary of my business. That was like four years ago. And I was reviewing all the data. I was reviewing all the interviews that I did with artists. I was reviewing all the collaborations I did, the things that I learned about manufacturing, which is crazy that I also went into that. The lessons that I learned from my clients, Didi and Gwyneth and, you know, everybody, like all the, I worked with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I was sort of like reflecting. And I said to myself, what is the next thing that I can do? Also, because I get bored myself and (laughs) I need like to do things, not to create chaos, like Elon Musk, whom I love as an entrepreneur, but this kind of guy who creates chaos to feel alive. I don't need to create chaos to feel alive. I just really need to stimulate myself learning things all the time. So I said, what can I do now? And I thought, well, maybe I can teach people what I have learned and I can create an online methodology and an online course. This is jumpstart. This is jumpstart. Yeah. Jumpstart, which I love. And that really caught like my attention. And it was like that idea that I couldn't really put to sleep. And I developed this syllabus, this, this kind of curriculum for that. And 
had my videographer and we did a it was long because it's like a complete program on creative thinking so i just was like very excited about it and i launched it and it did really well and then the people who were in that course who were everything from lawyers to artists would just really come back and say i had the most incredible experience after i applied everything that you taught us to this and that right which is not magic it's just being first is is being generous with information and not just sort of like you know this gatekeeper and just giving trickles of nothing it was just me being very honest with everything and thorough and then doing it right Right. it's like you know one thing is you get everything and do not do anything with it or people who do take the biggest steps and actions and that was so fulfilling and so fun and then the pandemic hits us in 2020 and i continue opening the course but then i had the idea that the course could be a book so that we could reach more people with it and while the book and the course are different in many aspects they are also very similar in some others i mean it's people learn in different ways yeah so that's sort of like to me everything is the same honestly it's like oh if i didn't have the experience then i wouldn't have been able to put this together and this creative thinking and entrepreneurship and artistry and not artistry like to me it's like i see that everything is a different piece of the same puzzle that is how i see things and how i approach my clients my practice my writing and you know that's kind of it yeah it seems strange but i'm sure there's a way to describe this that you can teach creativity for painting and creativity for writing and creativity for sculpture and creativity for business innovation and all these people can go through this course that are having different you know, career paths and get the same kind of benefit out of it. So what is it about creativity that it makes it universally applicable? Well, I think that the concept of creativity, a lot of people immediately consider it like painting, like just, yep. you know, or whatever, dancing, sculpting, right? And the idea that I transmit with all the things that I do is that creativity is this kind of amalgamation of skills and attitudes for people to come up with the best ideas that they can and that they can execute those ideas, right? And even like children have ideas, you and I have ideas. So ideas are universal. They don't belong to painters or dancers or rock stars alone. They belong to everybody. So I think it's the universal application of creative thinking and creativity actually as a verb, like something that is actively happening is applicable to anybody who wants to come up with better ideas and better businesses and better systems and better processes and anything, anything that you can improve that comes first from thinking and then from doing it. So obviously the two most important sources of inspiration for me are entrepreneurs and artists because they think really similarly. And there is a, a professor from Stanford, I think, Steve Blank, Stephen Blank, I forgot his name. He's a big venture capitalist. And he also has this same, I discovered that he had the same line of thinking after I had published my book, that he feels that entrepreneurs and artists yeah 
have the same type of mindset because they all start with a blank canvas and then they have to figure out how to get to the masterpiece or how to get to the business plan or, you know, the execution of the business. And so the way that I try to communicate this to the world at large is by juxtaposing two groups of people that in the mind of the layman couldn't be more different, right? Like, I mean, it's like Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci. They could be interchangeable in my mind, right? In my world, I see them as the same guy, just 600 years apart, right? Or 400. But to other people, it's like a sacrilegious thought even that, you know, how are you going to compare Leonardo da Vinci and Steve Jobs? How are you going to compare Michelangelo and Elon Musk? Or how... And the truth is, it's like the ways of thinking are very similar, but yeah. like be, like important leaders that can be creative have the same kind of, you know, evolution in their thoughts, the same characteristics in their personalities, in the way that they run their businesses and careers. And it's not exclusive of anybody. When people say I'm not creative, you know, that's a big lie because, again, creativity is not one thing. It's an amalgamation of different skills. It, it sounds. I mean, it sounds like in, in the summary. Just to wrap that, the summary is: it sounds like creativity is the production and execution of ideas. And that's it. It's like in any aspect of life, production, execution of ideas. Sure. I mean, that I agree with you. A lot of different scholars have created all these barriers, right? Like creativity with big C and creativity with a small C, and like when you're in the world of academia, sometimes you tend to just veer towards the kind of separations and categorizations yep. of things, which are great when you are in the classroom, but they are not necessarily that helpful in real life. I love the idea that academics segment things and artists bring them together. Yeah. In a way, that's a very good way of showing, you know, like the reality of life and yeah. The concept of creativity that you just said is an ample one, and it's one where everybody can participate, right? right? I mean, but again, it's like when you dissect it, what is a creative person? A creative person is someone who's curious, a person who is open, a person who is empathetic, a person who is willing to think outside of the limits of what exists, a person who is persistent. So it's not just, oh, he is creative. And what does that really mean? Right. You know, so when you go and you dig into the concept, if I ask anybody, well, can you be curious? Can you go the extra mile and, you know, research more? Can you question the rules that you were given in that book, then they say, yes, oh, of course I can. So then I say, well, so then you too are able to be a creative human being. In fact, you already are because you, when you were a child, nobody could take you out of creating, you know, whatever you wanted to do with sand and dirt and, you know, mice and I don't know, whatever it is you find to play with. But then as you go, as you grow older, you start learning all the reasons why you shouldn't or couldn't do that, which don't necessarily mean anything. They yeah. don't. Yeah. One of the things I like about the book was that uh, at the end of every chapter, you had this section called the Alchemy Lab, and it sort of makes it accessible, make, You know, brings the ability to be creative to the reader. So can you just tell us the purpose and, and describe maybe a few of those labs for us? Sure. The Alchemy Lab came out of 
basically the same way I structured Jumpstart, the online course is like this series of exercises for people to take after each session and think through the material. So it's not just read and philosophize about these things. It's more like, well, here is a guideline. You can take it or leave it. But the truth is the people who get the best results at everything are the people who try and test these things for themselves. So it's bringing alive what you just read before. And, you know, for example, you know, I have this, it's an interesting take on developing more empathy, which is a concept that I don't think people get anymore, to be honest with you. It's like in between no. the, the hatred of social media and like, you know, the extremes of everything. So what I say is it's very hard to be empathetic and to be creative and not be empathetic because when you are creative, you're trying to in a business, for example, you're trying to sell something to a customer or you are trying to make money, right? That's a business. And to do that, you have to appeal to other people. And so to do that, you have to understand them too, in a way, right? You cannot become them, but you have to understand them and appeal to them. And the best way to develop your empathy is to get out of your comfort zone in the sense of, well, if I read this newspaper every day, because it's my favorite thing, and also it's confirmation bias because it backs up what I think, then I might as well just like, you know, try a little bit of like the other side so I don't get entangled in this thing that continues to support and facilitate the loop that I already have created. And whomever says I'm not biased is lying because we are bombarded with information and we tend, you know, the algorithm feeds us what we want to see. Yep. No matter whether you're X.com or you're on Instagram or, you know, I mean, it's like you figure out a way to not live with the algorithm. It's fine. But in one way or the other, we're all in this matrix that's been run by big media, small media, social media, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So if you live by this, then try that. If you only watch crime television, try to go and watch a documentary about animals. And this is important because knowledge that grows in like leaps and bounds is the knowledge that accepts also those different points of views. You know that the growth of, you know, knowledge and also the way that we work now and neuroscientists work with the brain is that the brain is malleable. It's not like, oh, you are this. And that, right. no, I mean, it's like, we do have neuroplasticity for a reason. You can change, you can create. That's why so many, you know, times we found those people who are like 400 pounds and they are because I'm addicted to food and whatever, but then they really figure out all these new habits, all these new ways, and they keep doing it and they keep doing it. And they don't need to go to the gastric bypass because they learn new things and that's a new identity that they assume. So that is the same for the empathy or the curiosity or even creative thinking as a whole once you have integrated these things in your life. So yeah, I, I do encourage people, for example, in the book that if they have been doing the same thing with like the consumption of information for a long time, that they get themselves out of it. And I know that this is hard and I know that it might not be very welcome, but I am sure your audience is very smart and okay. I am sure they are considering it. 
Totally welcome. I mean, this is, I say this in my blogs constantly. It's read from lots of sources. Don't just read the same thing all the time. I loved what you just said. And I want to just point this out. I think business, especially big business in the United States kind of gets a bad rap, but I love the fact that in order to be successful, a business that does not have empathy fails. A business that does not serve some consumer fails. The only successful businesses are those that actually serve people. And I, I love that. That is something that I think most people miss entirely. And they just go on this tangent of dis disgust or hatred towards businesses. Love no. it. <laughs> no, 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 no. We need businesses. We need totally. businesses. We do need businesses of all sizes. Big businesses feed the small ones. And we can go on and on and on and on. What is the biggest misconception that you hear about creativity in general? Well, I think it's as what I told you before, like, oh, I'm not creative because I wasn't born with the gene of painting, you know, it's like that, which is funny or kind of like, oh, only painters are creative according to this person or like, you know, oh my God, no, I don't ask me that because I'm not a creative person. And I say, well, you know, what would happen if you are in your house and then there is a blackout and you have the fridge full of food, right? Or something like that. I mean, oh, well, I will go on the street like crazy and buy a big, you know, box and fill it with ice and then, I don't know, cold and whatever and dry ice and my sister in the next, I don't, so, you know, it's like, but you're very creative because you just mm. came up with like seven different things that would help the food not go bad if there is a blackout, you know, I mean, is because that's the thing is like, that is being creative. It might not be sending rockets to outer space, but it is, it does, it means that you do have very good ideas. And sometimes what people need is to have the, you know, it's very important to ask the right questions, right? Because th that will help you get to the right answer, which is what most people sometimes are so, I guess, stuck in this idea of like, I can't come up with what the different ideas of what to do. And I think probably it's because you are not answering the right question. And how do you get the right question is by peeling layers. Since you've been doing this for so long, do you think you're more creative today than you were when you started? Is it a muscle that strengthens when you use it? Yes, I think I am very creative much more than when I started. What I think Unfortunately, I'm busier. And so I don't have a lot of like downtime to sort of, I mean, I do this, I meditate every day and I sit in silence for at least 20 minutes a day for sure. But I used to have bigger pockets of thinking. And now because my business is busy and clients and things, and there is more and more, the art market grew a lot and a lot and it's just a very big business busy for me yeah. i can't sort of like deviate from that to think if well what could i do what i do think that's very helpful for me is that because of everything that i have learned i do have a lot of resources in my head of solutions to problems to day-to-day -day issues that i face that are helping me always sort of move forward, right? And and I think that 
that is an example of this big C, small C type of thing. Like I'm not necessarily right now thinking about what is the next launch? What is the next project? What is the next book? I'm more sort of like, who's the person who's buying this $1 million painting, right? Like I'm thinking in the back of my mind, solutions to problems like that, for example, which, you know, are also creative in the way that the solutions that come up to my head might not necessarily be the most obvious ones because then that's not creative. So. (laughs) (laughs) So I ask every single guest to simplify their message for us. And so pretend for a second that, you know, you're talking to somebody that may have read the book and they want sort of a cliff notes version. And they're saying, you know, Maria, what is one thing that I can do today that would help me be more creative tomorrow? And then what is one thing that I should stop doing today that will help me be more creative tomorrow? I think the first thing that I would say is pay close attention to everything you're doing today because of the amount of distractions that we are facing daily, people have lost the ability to pay attention. Mm. And usually when you pay attention, you find a whole lot of information and a ton of important data that people are missing because they are on the phones, on social media, they are listening to a podcast at the same time that they are cooking and, you know, the dog is on the back and the kids are running. And so and so you're like literally paying attention to all these things at the same time. So I would invite people to be in the moment and it's it could be a combination of mindfulness with also removing distractions, which is the thing that I feel that people get the most detrimental thing that has happened to this society of ours is that, you know, our attentions have gone to nothing. I mean, people's, uh, it's just like the attention span is nothing, right? It's, it's seconds. It's like even sometimes happens that, you know, I'm, I'm with this very, very intellectual friends and they're like, I don't know what's going on with me, but I cannot read more than 10 pages at once. You know, I mean, I have to stop and then I have to check Instagram and I, and angst and I like, it's because it's addictive, right? I mean, these are, are loops that we have created in our brains that release dopamine. And like, for some people, it's just refreshing the news, right? And see yep. what horrors are happening. And for other people, it's refreshing the Instagram feed. And for other people, it's the X feed. And for other people, and so I think that creativity and attention and mindfulness are very intertwined. You know, Steve Jobs was a very huge meditator and he, you know, his thing was Zen meditation. Yes, a lot of people can be very creative and not necessarily be in silence, but I do not know anybody who's really creative and successful who's not paying attention. Even if they have ADHD or whatever they say they have, which is fine, they still are paying attention to society. They are paying attention to their surroundings. They are paying attention. What are the kids doing? You know, like a lot of people dismissed TikTok and whatever. And like, if they would have jumped on what their kids were doing, they could have like, build audiences or, you know, invested in the company, whatever it is, you know, and they were like, ah, you know, dismissed. like, it's just like the amount of things that, and understandably so, the amount of overwhelming stimulation around humans is very concerning. 
But it's also, yeah, it's staggering, but also people are like, leave me alone. And when you do that, then you miss excellent opportunities to make money. I have a friend who always pays attention to everything. And he, he, yeah, no, he's very, very good at that. And so one day he came to me and said, that was like maybe, I don't know, nine years ago or whatever. He came to me and said, listen, you know, I've been going to this gym and I'm seeing all these girls that are wearing this leggings and they have a horseshoe on the back. And I was like, horseshoe? What kind of horseshoe? And so he's like, well, a horseshoe. I said, like, uh, I said uh, that's an omega symbol, you dude. And he's like, oh, yeah, that. So, and he's like, what is that? And he's like, well, there's a company called Lululemon. Oh, my God. So he went, he bought stock. And then, you know, like a year later, he, literally, he made like 500,000 bucks. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. It's like, you're going to tell, oh, that's not being creative. I think it is because he figured out if everybody at the gym is wearing that, this might as well be an excellent opportunity to get into something that he had never seen. Be- he's like... I notice it every day more and more. What is it? Yep. So, you know, for most people, this is just uh, noise, right? It's visual noise. It's like you develop blind spots when you drive to your uh, office every day or whatever, and you take the same route. It's almost like you're on autopilot. You don't need to, like, pay attention to mo. I mean, you pay attention to the road, right? Like, you're a safe driver, but you're not really looking to right. what's happening in the periphery and having peripheral vision is one of the most important things people can develop for their businesses if they really want to pay attention to opportunities. Yes. Fantastic. Very long. It no, was about 10 seconds and I just went on to like two hours. No, that's good. So before we wrap up, I just want to know, is there anything that people don't know about you or that maybe you've told them and they don't remember that you really want them to know about you? No, I think that we have covered a lot. I think that, you know, I mean, I have many facets. And so it's like, I love that you asked me if I had left behind my art advisory. No, I'm still advising and people building art collections. It's, I love it. It's my job. It's, but I also love this creative thinking path that I have in parallel. And I think, you know, it's important for me. It's like, I see this, the business has different divisions and, you know, it has different things to offer and they are all connected through this, both entrepreneurship and art. So if you could get the truth about one question about your life or future, I can't give you the answer, but what would be the question? I don't want to know. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a slippery answer. (laughs) I don't want to know. I think that... It will take the excitement and it'll take the hustle, you know, or I don't know. I I just, I mean, I, I read this interesting passage of this guy. He was very rich or it's mythology. He was very rich or something. And he had this direct line with God and whatnot. And he's like, you know, I'm sick and I just really don't want to die. So then somebody came in. And another guy who also had a direct line to God or whatever said, look, what are you doing here? Are you coming to tell me that I'm going to get well? And he's like, no, I came to tell you you're going to die. So the guy was like, oh, my God, fuck. You know, I mean, how come, you know? So the guy left and he was like, God, please give me 15 more years to live. And so God said, okay. And the other guy came back and said, God, tell me, okay, you can live 15 years more. So basically this guy wanted to know everything that was happening to him or what happened to him. And then 15 years later, he died. So bottom line of the story is, I don't want to know. 
I yeah. don't want to know. It's like the truth is I have been surprised myself by my life so many times. And I think in a good way. And I, you know, I think it's a great adventure to be building things for my legacy, whatever that is, and to be, you know, raising my children and, and doing great things for others. And I don't want to know. Yeah, there's value in the surprise. So tell people how they can connect with you. Well, I have my website is mariabreda.com. That's just B R I T as in Tom O. And that has links to all my social media profiles and LinkedIn and all that. And also has a form to fill out if anybody wants to talk to me directly and that's where I am. And it's a link to the book, links to everything. I think that's the easiest path for anybody. All right. Maria, thanks so much for coming on. All that stuff will be in the show notes. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jonathan. That was wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.